Hello and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar, where we talk about military history from ancient times to modern. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Nicholas Sambalik, who will be talking about cyber warfare. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Michael Sambalik, author of Myths and Realities of Cyber Warfare, Conflict in the Digital Realm, published March 2020 by Prager, ABC Clio. And even though the book does talk about um, current cyber warfare issues, there is a section that we'll talk about which um, is focused on earlier uh, cyber attacks and cyber operations in the early 2000s. So that's the military history part we'll, we'll be hitting. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much, Chris, for having me. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Cool. Um, so first, tell me, how did you get into studying this subject and writing a book on it? Well, uh, so I was trained as a, as a military historian uh, and uh, North Texas and then the University of Kansas. And then my career started at uh, teaching at West Point and then later at Purdue. And while I, a lot of my teaching uh, duties were associated with military history, which was in keeping with, with my preparation as a scholar, I found that uh, a lot of my uh, taskings uh, continually involved current affairs and especially technology. My dissertation had dealt with uh, the embrace of a particular kind of military technology and its association with with uh, security concerns, specifically in you know, space security concerns. And so I found myself in in a series of taskings that involved technology and increasingly uh, cyber. The result was about a half year, a dozen years of uh, of taskings, reading about cyber, commenting on cyber, providing unclassified uh, thoughts on it, and that brought me into dialogue with uh, some of the literature. and And uh, I came to the realization that there are a lot of common assertions about cyber warfare that I think need more scrutiny and more nuance. And essentially, I came to the conclusion that. Uh, you know uh, that I, I do have something to offer here, uh, despite not being like a coder or a or a cyber techie kind of person myself. As a military historian who's read uh, on the on the topic and and come to it with an analytical bent from from that grounding, I do have something to offer here. Let's talk about the uh, military history part of this book. Um, I noted in your email, you mentioned a, a couple things, um, something that occurred in 2000 and then the uh, Russian operations around 2007, 2008. Can, can we talk about those? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the things that, uh, that we've noticed is that uh, cyber warfare, depending on how broadly we define it, uh, is starting to, to acquire something, something of a, of a, of a history. It's uh, it is still certainly current affairs, but uh, a lot of these events have have, sa- have now kind of passed into into history. Um, of course, the sort of the, the landmark first example of uh, hacking for high profile uh, strategic purposes is is arguably uh, what was known as the cuckoo's egg, the 1986. Uh, uh, KGB uh, actions to get into uh, U.S. Uh, computer systems and try to find out more about U.S. Uh, defense defense priorities and, and research. Uh, another big area that we see uh, concern about in, in recent years is the vulnerability of, uh, of SCADA, of uh, um, uh, essentially the, the systems that, that coordinate and control 
uh, critical infrastructure, water, electricity, things like that. And uh, although that's a topic that has come into some high-profile concern in recent years, the first example of, of SCADA being targeted by a effectively a cyber attack came in the year 2000 when uh, Maruchi Shire in uh, Australia was um, hacked in and compromised by a uh, somebody who had who had expected to get a, a job offer overseeing the system he'd been involved in its design and so when he didn't get a position overseeing what he'd what he'd created he hacked into it and then uh, released a bunch of sewage into the uh, into the natural environment and, and created a uh, an ecological uh, local ecological disaster mm-hmm. so a lot of these things go back farther than we might imagine um, certainly in, in in more of a conventional because that was a certainly destructive but it wasn't for a political purpose mm-hmm. we we see a lot of uh, politically oriented um, maleficent uh, cyber activity uh, and I think the examples you brought to, you mentioned to, are, are, are really good um, the hacking of uh, Estonia the uh, 2007 uh, distributed denial of service attacks that were directed against Estonian um, sites as we think as a retaliation against uh, Estonia's removing a statue that had been um, of the of Soviet vintage, mm-hmm. celebrating the Soviet uh, uh, liberation, really occupation of that country, uh, the relocation of that of that statue had touched off a lot of um, angst within Russia, and it appears that there was uh, a coordinated effort to direct uh, distributed uh, denial of service attacks, kind of harassing attacks, mm-hmm. to take down a lot of the Estonian um, grid. And interestingly, uh, although forensics experts were pretty certain that that came from Russia, one of the interesting things about a cyber attack is that the the attacks don't necessarily seem to come from the places where they where they uh, where they're designed. Uh, in that case, there were 178 different countries who where machines were located throughout the world and ended up. Um, pinging uh, Estonian computers in a way that was that was hostile. Uh, most of those machines were, th- were, were owned by people who had no idea that their home computer or their laptop was part of, uh, of some what's called a, a botnet, uh, an array of, of computers that are answering not just the official user's uh, commands, but also in the background doing things that someone who is hacked into the machine is commanding it to do at the same time. I guess the other uh, example uh, you mentioned, uh, 2008, when uh, similarly, typically low, low sophisticated cyber attacks were, were meted out against Georgia, um, that coincided with a kinetic war uh, that was occurring between Georgia and Russia, and I think it provides an example of when uh, when cyber attacks don't necessarily need to be super sophisticated to have some kind of strategic impact because if you've got a country that is involved in kinetic fighting but its government websites for example can't project um to the world what uh, that that country's version of what's going on mm-hmm. um there, there's a strategic impact i think we're in recent years we're becoming more more aware of the the more permanent reverberations of what had 
previously been thought of as, as reversible or temporary attacks. I think that it's probably a useful thing that, that society is starting to understand, mm -hmm. that the effects of even a so-called temporary attack can be much more long-lasting. Mm -hmm. How many um, incidents have there been of, um, let's say, by one country against another outside of uh, conflict where they might be prepping, you know, either doing psychological warfare or asymmetric warfare prepping, you know, prepping for future conflicts versus uh, cyber warfare being used during kinetic conflict. Gosh, um, I think uh, uh, anyone's anyone's guess is a, is a potentially valid one hmm. on that. It's, uh, it seems to be pretty, pretty endemic. I guess uh, what I'd want to venture, I, I suppose, is that uh, since there are relatively few examples of cyber attacks coinciding with kinetic fighting, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia in, in 2008 is an example. Um, the uh, the ongoing uh, uh, collisions, military collisions in eastern Ukraine, is an example. I guess uh, cyber involvement during uh, Syria's civil war be another. Mm -hmm. There are instances in which we certainly see uh, cyber attacks happening in step with, with kinetic conflict, but uh, uh, certainly it, it, it appears that in terms of the cyber activity that is malevolent but is not alongside kinetic warfare, that that is probably, we're, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. that there's far more of that. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Nicholas Sambalik, author of Myths and Realities of Cyber Warfare. You can find him on Twitter at History and Context. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Your ratings go a long way in increasing the listenership of this podcast. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at War Scholar or on YouTube at War Scholar 1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at War Scholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Are you able to talk at all about the um, sort of the infrastructure of, uh, you, you touched on it a little bit uh, already, but the infrastructure um, that nations might use or have used to conduct cyber warfare. In terms of infrastructure, there's uh, there, there's kind of an interesting quirk about about the internet in that uh, the infrastructure that the civilian world utilizes mm -hmm. is effectively it, it overlaps to a tremendous extent with what uh, uh, the what what are used for defense needs, mm -hmm. and so uh, it's very hard to target something that is quote, purely military, mm -hmm. because it's uh, like if you, if, you, if you were to try to, to prevent military traffic from going on the highway and you wanted to close the highway, using a kinetic metaphor, mm -hmm. if you close the highway, most of the traffic that was going to be on there is civilian. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, to, a, to a large extent, 
the infrastructure of the of the internet is something where you, it, it's really difficult to to peel off and say, well, now we're we're just looking at military related or military related things. Mm-hmm. Now we're just looking at at civilian uses. It's uh, it's all kind of intertwined. Let's address or let's talk about the um, the myths and realities part of the title in your book. Um, tell me about that. What does that mean? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, so, I, a lot of assertions have been made about cyber warfare uh, in in the last uh, in many years. We're now a couple of decades into the 21st century, and a lot of mythologies have taken hold. And the the primary uh, reason that I that I wanted to set out and write this book is because I think a lot of those mythologies need to be unpacked. And there need to be questions of a lot of those uh, common assumptions um, posed to them and posed to the literature that, that advances them. Uh, some examples of that are we hear quite frequently that cyber attacks strike with instantaneous speed because, oh, my gosh, these, this is electronics. You know, the speed of electrons, the speed of light, cyber attacks must, must happen in, almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And when we unpack that, we find that, well, uh, it, it Kind of depends on what we mean by cyber attack. Um, some of the really obvious forms of cyber attacks, like distributed denial of service, do hit instantaneously. That that's a a term that means uh, when you're essentially when when you have an attack where uh, people are all simulating legitimate traffic more or less, but they're doing it for a purpose that's um, meant to annoy and, and then overwhelm the capacity of, say, a website to respond to visits. Mm-hmm. And when it's overwhelmed, it's temporarily out of service. So a distributed denial of service attack, that's something that can be very quickly, uh, very abruptly meted out on a target. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other cyber attack types that that are patently not instantaneous. And a lot of the uh, experts point to things like advanced persistent threats or APTs. Mm-hmm. These things uh, that we, uh, we cyber forensics folks have have uh, um, organized a list of literally dozens of um, well-funded, well-trained, robust teams of people who uh, systematically hack into major targets for uh, strategic or economic. Uh, purposes. Mm -hmm. And those folks, they spend literally months and years infiltrating and exploring uh, targeted systems very deliberately. And their intent is to specifically not be noticed, Mm -hmm. to not be instantaneous, to not be noticed, to go under the the radar, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and explore and, and discover and then exfiltrate enormous amounts of data. Another another uh, uh, one of these mythologies is that distance is irrelevant. Cyber attacks can strike all over the world because you know the, the whole world is interconnected. Okay, um, certainly we see that uh, uh, it is possible through cyber attacks to uh, to reach out and touch a country that is not uh, geographically proximate. But I think uh, we we find that geography and terrain these still matter. They matter in new ways. When we think about things like uh, air gapping uh, computer systems to try to insulate them from the kind of connectivity that also brings vulnerability to a cyber attack, um, it, I think it's distance 
has a, a relevance that's changing when we think about uh, cyber conflict. Mm-hmm. But uh, too often, I think it's, it's summed up as being irrelevant when really it, the relevance is changing. Uh, another mythology that I think um, is is something that needs to be interrogated a bit is that cyber attacks are, are cheap and they're widely available. Okay, again, that's that's often true. And with a lot of generalizations and stereotypes, something is true enough to sustain the stereotype maintaining a certain cachet. And and, and here here is 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 a good example. Cyber attacks are cheap and they are widely available. If we're talking about relatively simple attacks. Uh, the kinds of things that relatively untrained novices, folks that are referred to as script kiddies, can do if they like take a a sheet of paper with a list of directions and they just type you know keystrokes according to the directions and they make a simple attack. Mm-hmm. That is pretty cheap and that is quite widely available. But if we're talking about tailored attacks against unique targets, much less so. A couple other uh, mythologies I, I want to go ahead and, and highlight. One is that uh, cyber attacks are are one-use weapons. We hear that quite a bit. Uh, that uh, that malware once you once somebody uses a piece of malware, it inherently discloses how how it worked. That the that one can reverse engineer and discover how a piece of malware functioned, and then develop a patch and seal off that vulnerability so that it can never be used again. Mm-hmm. In theory, yes, and. Uh, and that's given that that mythology has given rise to a lot of of assumptions that well then maybe maybe it's almost the target's own fault when they get attacked, and we should almost blame the victim. And I think that's while that has been enunciated by by some very prominent experts in the field, mm-hmm. I I think there's there's more to it that we really should think about. Um, they're one-use weapons if people are patching consistently and rapidly and effectively, and if the patch doesn't open up a different vulnerability, for example. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of systems that can't be rapidly patched. Infrastructure uh, is a prominent example. Mm-hmm. The The malware that, that temporarily brought down a lot of the electric grid in Ukraine back in December of 2015, mm-hmm. that piece of malware was something that uh, used an exploit that had a had first been identified a dozen years earlier, but who's going to say, yes, sign, sign me up, sign the whole country up to going without, go without electricity for hours, days, weeks, mm-hmm. while the system is patched up. And so very often uh, patching is, is tougher than it, than it might seem to be. Mm-hmm. And so while, while we do hear some folks seeming to almost want to blame the victim for being not well enough protected, and that's why they got attacked. Mm-hmm. I think we should be very, very cautious. And the last mythology that I want to want to highlight is uh, this idea that that cyber attacks have reversible effects. That ha- is that is one that is thankfully losing a bit of ground mm-hmm. um, for for some good reasons. For one thing, when every time we see kinetic effects from a cyber attack that helps erode this mythology that cyber attacks have reversible effect. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect is that sometimes we're seeing cyber uh, activities in cyberspace where the effects impinge on trust in social processes or democratic institutions. Mm-hmm. That kind of erosion of trust is something that's going to, that's going to matter a long time after the 
actual event of the attack itself. Mm-hmm. And then a, a last factor that I think also is important uh, regarding the reverse, so-called reversibility is that they're reversible only if we de- deliberately ignore the lost time and lost money and lost effort in continually reloading backups and uh, engaging our, our, uh, our experts in recovering, recovering lost data. Well, that's, that's a, often a non-trivial cost. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of mythologies were things that I, I felt really needed to be grappled with. And I, I wanted to share my, my thought process. And that was uh, important in my deciding to, to propose this, uh, this book. So let me ask a couple very uh, basic questions, um, maybe technical, maybe outside of the scope of the book, but uh, get your thoughts on it. Um, one, someone might ask, why haven't the militaries of whatever country you want uh, just set up a separate um, internet infrastructure to take care of their their forces? You know, just break away from the World Wide Web and do their own thing. That's a uh, that's a really good question. That uh, that's well above my uh, my ability to accurately uh, uh, provide any any particular insight. I know that. When we first, uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. When, when we first made the internet, uh, uh, we, in a historical sense, in the, in, in the sense of the U.S., um, it was developed as a kind of a combination of being a defense research project and a way to link um, the serviceability of, of different, very expensive uh, research computers at different installations uh, and, and academic settings. And I think folks kind of got used to presuming that that network of trusted users with expensive materials and legitimate purposes um, was just an environment that we could trust. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of started out with the assumption that, well, most of these folks are going to be military or academics. And with the, the growth of interconnectivity, the excitement about what could be done at that connectivity far outstripped an awareness of the implications that, well, when, when you democratize access, it brings not just the good benefits of now everybody can participate, but also the, the negative aspects of, well, now everybody can participate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, there's a lot of expense in, in building the kind of redundancy and duplication to be able to, to, distance and remove one one element of, of the traffic from from that infrastructure that's been elaborately um, derived mm-hmm. um, but uh, why not is a is a that's a that's a tough one mm-hmm. there's certainly a case to be made for it but uh, historically that's sort of how things unfolded and the second question another basic one again maybe technical beyond the scope of this book but um mm-hmm. How how do these hackers, how do these attackers, someone might ask, how can they get into a system and not be noticed? You know, how could you not notice uh, a, a, a strange user on your computer, even if it's, even if you're not monitoring, how come you can't set up a monitor, monitoring uh, program to see that someone's mucking about? Oh, sure. So that's, a, that is a tremendous question too. And I'm, uh, I want to preface my description by by emphasizing I'm, I'm not I'm not coming from this from, uh, from a technical background or bent so much as as a, a military historian who's read 
a lot about it and grappled with with the assertions being uh, that are going on. Mm-hmm. But we do see, um, as far as how, how do these folks infiltrate, they find they'll often find a way in um, through frequently uh, tricking a human user into allowing some first first entry into a system and through that sort of social engineering of a of a victimized person get into a system and set a presence up in a, in an other otherwise legitimate account within say a network and then work on uh, elevating the the administrative privileges of that of that user and then spread out maybe laterally across a network mm-hmm. and so um, they don't need too much of a of a um, open window in order to sort of slide into the building and go wherever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, it, from the defender standpoint, uh, as you mentioned, uh, what can defenders do to to track this kind of presence? There are some things that that have been established uh, uh, as best practices, I guess, for for a few decades now, um, going back historically to the to the mid eighties. Uh, one of them being uh, to when there is a suspicion that someone has infiltrated into a network to set up pieces of data and files that seem to be enticing to a, a stranger who, who doesn't belong in the network but might be looking for important or valuable information. But insiders might understand this is – it's a junk file. Mm. Uh, and then watching to see which which accounts are, are accessing these files that are not – true information but man they they look enti- enticing and intriguing mm-hmm. uh the so-called uh, honeypots mm-hmm. to to track who 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 is who is going to places that don't make sense for a legitimate user user to go mm-hmm. uh that is one of the one of the methods that has proven pretty useful historically mm-hmm. for vendors now uh just to compare older operations to current ones let's say um if you're able to answer this, let's look back to what Russia did in 2007 to what's going on um, in Syria and Ukraine. Now, do you see any changes uh, between those either in who's doing it, how they're doing it, what their goals are, how they're defended against? Um, have you seen any shifts over the what 10, 12 year period? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think, I think, one of the things I've noticed in kind of panning back and taking a, a big view of, of trends is that we're seeing, a, I guess, a diversification of what things are malevolent actors are, are willing to do and able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, there might be an intuitive uh, expectation that as we see more cyber warfare happen, that cyber weapons are going to be increasingly sophisticated and whether that means that they're better at hitting a particularly unique target or having widespread effects or narrow effects or different folks have predicted different different kinds of things but i think what we've what we've seen is that the kinds of cyber attacks used have have diversified rather than necessarily consolidated on a particular kind of attack mm-hmm. uh, there's still certainly um Attackers seem to seem to find utility in not very technically sophisticated activities. 
in order to harass and uh, cajole targets. At the same time that we see very sophisticated things with with uh, uh, code that is meant to take advantage of vulnerabilities that have never been understood or recognized before, so-called zero days, mm-hmm. we're seeing we're seeing the whole the whole spectrum being witnessing engagement. Mm-hmm. And so, to date, I think we we haven't yet seen a consolidation of malevolent actors saying, "Aha, that's that's the kind of uh, cyber attack that is best." It's really much more a matter of uh, finding the kind of attack that fits the the goals of the uh, of the actor, and so sometimes it's it's a, a, a low sophistication thing like a distributed denial of service. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a high sophistication thing like a like an advanced persistent threat. Sometimes it has nothing to do with any technical skill at all, and it's something like just having sock puppets spreading disinformation. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it it's uh, and in in those regards you got a lot of things going on in social media that that aren't even really uh, what I would consider a cyber attack in a, in a technical sense, but rather it's an attack that is simply traversing cyberspace as as a a path through which it it travels. But it it has much more uh, commonality similarities with uh, with say propaganda efforts than with uh, the technical aspects of cyber attack as we as we'd imagined it decades ago. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Nicholas Sambolik, author of Myths and Realities of Cyber Warfare. You can find him on Twitter at History N Context. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Your ratings go a long way in increasing the listenership of this podcast. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at Warscholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Warscholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Have you noticed, um, have you been able to uh, determine if the targets of cyber warfare my my suspicion, or just my my guess, not necessarily educated, is the targets used to be infrastructure and military personnel for the purpose of cyber warfare, but it seems that it's expanded now that the targets include much more of uh, the population, civilian population, infrastructure, and uh, people. Um, that seems to be the case. Would you say? What would you say to that? Uh, anecdotally, I'd say that that sounds uh, sounds very plausible. We certainly see a lot of targeting of uh, of the minds of individual people, mm-hmm. and the leveraging of that ser- certainly seems to be uh, a threat vector that uh, malevolent folks have have recognized an ability to to achieve something from their from their perspective mm-hmm. in, in that way, and it's something that uh, defenders. Are still struggling to come up with a uh, with a good response to it, mm-hmm. and I think one thing that I think uh, military history shows us is that 
threats threats tend to be practiced a lot and more when there isn't a really plausible, workable way of dealing with them. Once there's a way that is believed to be effective in confronting them, well then, you know, war is an interactive uh, process. People, people who are going to uh, try to be hostile, they're going to work to find some other way that's going to be effective in, in conflict and imposing their will on, on an adversary. Mm-hmm. But uh, until, until something seems ineffective about, about this, either ineffective in the sense that the defenders are, are blocking its impact or that something else is even more advantageous, it seems likely that we're going to see more of the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to turn to the research, the resources you used for this, the research in this book. Um, but do we, are there any other um, significant secondary issues that we haven't touched on that you might want to mention? I guess uh, uh, there's a little excerpt of maybe a paragraph that I wouldn't mind uh, uh, reading regarding uh, social media that uh, might be might be interesting and kind of uh, touch on these topics. Sure. I mentioned that uh, there is no feature of social media tools that can be established to guarantee that a private communications app can only be used to protect against a dictator and not to plot a, a terrorist attack or to disclose photos of a cute pet rather than spread false accusations. Like the Vichy French police uh, functionary in the classic film noir Casablanca, Silicon Valley appears to be shocked, shocked, that gambling is going on when it comes to the repurposing of social media and social networking apps. Even uh, scholars working to explain manipulation of social media seem surprised that a platform that can be leveraged for political purposes might be leveraged in different ways by more aggressive actors. The the different different ways of using using technologies is something that that is still confounding a lot of, a lot of people globally. Even though there had been a lot of celebration of the the notion that that interconnectivity was going to be something that could be leveraged in all kinds of unpredictable ways, mm-hmm. and it, and it has been. It just some of those ways have included conflict mm-hmm. and. Uh, Globally, we seem surprised by that, and I think it's it's important to consider carefully whether whether we should be surprised and uh, what what that really means. Yeah. In in terms of in terms of sources, uh, I used a combination of materials, all unclassified, of course. Um, mm. A lot of books about cyber warfare, uh, reports by government uh, governments by NGOs. A lot of think tank discussions, mm-hmm. the, the kinds of materials that that are used to shape discourse about a topic, were things that I wanted to use uh, as source material for finding and interrogating a lot of the uh, the common assertions about about cyber warfare, and then also, of course, a lot of uh, a lot of studies from the journalistic aspects and uh, in disclosed. Uh, Un- unclassified uh, investigatory uh, materials as well. Uh, there are a couple of books that I think are especially useful on the subject. Of course, um, I- I'm-, I'm quite partial to-, to myths and realities of cyber warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, a couple of materials that I thought were uh, especially insightful also uh, were uh, um, a book called On Cyber, Toward an Operational Art for Cyber Conflict by uh, uh, Greg Conti and David Raymond. And also uh, Bruce Schneier, who's a very uh, 
well-known and lively author in the in in this uh, arena. Uh, one of his books is uh, Data and Goliath, which is especially I think especially useful and interesting. Mm-hmm. So a, a variety of, of of resources, books, but also uh, various reports, investigatory materials, think tank discussions, uh, and uh, journalistic reports as well. Mm-hmm. Do you get a, a sense, again, thinking about it historically, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, the cyber actor that, um, that nations are using, you know, every people think of the, uh, the kid, the young guy in his, you know, basement in a dark room hacking away. Um, do you get any sense of, do you have an army of those types of people being recruited or used in some way by, by nations? to conduct operations or is it more um have you seen a more uh rigid structure you know where they they use people within their own government or military to to do operations yeah, that's a, that's a great question also um so uh, i guess it seems that we're that uh, both are are happening a lot with regard to to folks the sort of stereotypical uh, you know guy in the basement with the hoodie kind of thing mm-hmm. A lot of folks uh, in in many countries will conduct cybercrime, and um, several governments um, in in the world have responded to that with uh, an intent that uh, that the cybercrime at least be it be directed externally. The authorities aren't necessarily too too concerned in, in many countries, as long as the person who's getting ripped off by the the phony email, the Nigerian prince kind of thing. All I need is your social security number and your bank account, and I can give you your millions. Mm-hmm. All kinds of these fake uh, cybercrime kind of activities are permitted and accepted more or less, as long as they're they're targeting people outside the country, mm-hmm. and. This serves um, countries that don't have a whole bunch of scruples because they are making sure that their own that their own personal uh, uh, per, uh, populace isn't being targeted too much. But also, they do keep tabs on these guys, and so they they develop a rap sheet. And when they when they want to make sure they've got a little bit more techies with wearing hoodies, um, firepower at the state's uh, disposal, they they have been known to go in and arrest these people and say, well, we know that you've been doing these cyber crimes that we've been looking at the way around uh, about for years. Um, and so we could put you in jail or you could do some cyber attacks at our bidding. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is certainly something that we, that uh, uh, experts have pointed to happening in, in many of the countries that have a lot of hostile cyber activity mm-hmm. emanating from them. That is a significant factor. Um, and also, uh, somewhat akin to that, you've got people who are so-called patriotic hackers mm-hmm. who, uh, can't, they can't criti- uh, critique or criticize their own government, mm-hmm. but they are welcome and even sometimes encouraged to critique and harass, uh, foreign governments. The, uh, honkers union in, in China, was a, a, a big example of this, uh, a couple of decades ago mm-hmm. when you had the, uh, um, the the bomb that hit the uh, Chinese embassy in Belgrade mm. uh, during the, the the war with Milosevic, uh, and also the the collision you know over international waters of a of a U.S. Uh, aircraft with a with a Chinese jet, mm. 
a lot of these patriotic hackers would uh, deface U.S. websites as a way to demonstrate their patriotic rebelliousness, I guess, but also their um, self-perceived bona fides as hackers. Mm-hmm. Well, that worked fine from the perspective of um, governments that uh, that were happy to to wield them as sort of a an on the cheap way of harassing uh, someone on the international stage. Mm-hmm. But what about when, when when that government wants to to cool things down? And the patriotic hackers don't listen because hmm. they, if they're not being paid by the government, they the government is much less able to to tell them when to stop or when to recontour their their activities, hmm. short of you know pushing putting putting those folks in 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 jail. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that some experts have suggested is that some of these countries that have encouraged patriotic hacking against external threats, well, the chickens are kind of sometimes have the capability of coming home to roost huh. yeah. uh, and and these people who are who have gotten used to critiquing people online uh, might forget which side of the uh, uh, their their bread is is sort of buttered through benign neglect mm-hmm. and so um, a lot of these on the cheap ways to to leverage hoodie hacker power they do ha- they represent something of a devil-edged sword but but that doesn't that doesn't keep them from being very very properly uh, used. So thinking back to when we talked about civilians and civilian structures as targets, and then talking about um, these individuals who are sort of recruited quote recruited temporarily, it makes me think about the Geneva Convention. And if you had actual conflict, um, I don't think the rules of war necessarily know how to account for cyber warfare. You know, does that hacker become, are they classified a spy? Can they, you know, if they were ever caught, could they be executed as a spy because they're not in uniform? Um, and then, you know, attacks on civilians, is that a war crime? You know, if it's not actually killing them, you know, so that's sort of the, the, the train of thought I'm going through as, as we discuss this. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point because um, there is not consensus about what a cyber attack is or what cyber war is. And so uh, issues about, well, so what's the role of a person who decides I'm not in the military, I'm not with a government, but I want to do something in cyberspace uh, that has a deliberately hostile effect on somebody else. What's that person's status? There's, there's not really a consensus that's emerged in that regard. A lot of efforts have, have gone into tackling those issues like the like the the Italian manual and Italian manual 2.0 that came out a few years ago where we had a lot of western cyber and other sort of related uh, scholars meet and try to discuss these issues but their their efforts are interesting and intriguing and and noble perhaps but a consensus is not has has absolutely not emerged on what exactly is the place of these People who are who are uh, otherwise civilians, but they're taking actions. It, it's interesting because you know, a hundred years ago, we had a lot of struggle about what do you do this uh, with with this situation in kinetic combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the the origins of the you know German uh, brutalities in in Belgium, for example, in early uh, in early in World War One against these 
suspected uh, front tirer, um, free firers who are, you know, civilians, but they are grabbing a rifle and taking a pot shot whenever they see a pickle halba. Um, the Germans did grievous things against whole, whole towns about that. So, and they took a lot of um, popular consternation and indignation across the, the global community as a result. But what, what do we do with somebody who is that equivalent, or even how do we define that equivalent mm-hmm. uh, in cyber is a very uh, open and contentious issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. What part of the research was most enjoyable for you? I think uh, examining what assumptions lie underneath assertions is something that has always really uh, intrigued me. Um, so reaching reaching to grasp what the assumptions are and interrogating those assumptions it was something I, I felt valuable, valuable uh, here in this in this uh, uh, project, something that I had identified and really enjoyed as early as when I was at the start of my career teaching you know, civilizations and humanities courses to, to undergrads. Mm-hmm. Uh, applying a critical eye is a very exciting thing. It's an intellectual adventure. And uh, um, w- one example I think is uh, – Often cybersecurity folks, kind of related to, to the point uh, we were just discussing about the, the role of civilians in, in cyber war, is attribution. A lot, of, a lot of cybersecurity folks wish there to be better attribution. Some of them mean better to be faster. Mm-hmm. Others mean better as, as more reliable. It's assumed quite often that better attribution will make cybersecurity easier. And as a historian, I, I want to ask, well, why? Why would it? Uh, on the battlefield, you know, armies adopted uniforms really in about the 17th century, generally at, around the same time that Europe saw the rise of mass armies, standardized gunpowder weapons, you know, firing big plumes of smoke from, from black powder making white smoke. Uniforms allowed better control of troops. They allowed better coordination of units. They allowed more discipline over military organizations. But uniforms and physical combat did not magically make wars smaller. They did not magically make wars war more tidy. Mm-hmm. They, they coincided very often with, with just the opposite. And so um, when I hear assertions like, well, if only attribution could be easier, then our problems would be solved, I have to wonder, well, why – does that really hold up? Um, so what I wanted to do was was probe assumptions with this book and to invite the reader to to explore my, my line of thought and, uh, and analysis here. But even beyond that, for the, for the reader to ask why. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was something I found particularly enjoyable in this process. So what exactly is attribution? I apologize if you define well, it. I'm sorry. It so before. attribution is um, the the process of, of coming to to decide who is who is culpable who's guilty of of launching this attack mm-hmm. um, i'll use the the 2007 uh, estonian uh, distributed denial of service attacks as an example mm-hmm. the estonians had just taken an action that uh, in removing that statue that upset a lot of people in russia and one of the officials in in the um, the russian government had openly joked that, you know, it wasn't me, it was my deputy. Hmm. But the actual, the pings of DDoS attack that hit Estonia came from 178 countries. Mm -hmm. 
So attribution would be the process of deciding, okay, so although computers in 178 countries were touching Estonian systems in a way that hurt them mm -hmm. or hurt, hurt their functionality uh, in a temporary sense, the attribution would say, well, that was actually something that was directed by Russia. The, the second largest number of machines that were involved in those attacks were located in the United States. Hmm. But most of those people were American computer users who, well, they leave their laptop on at night because uh, updates or whatever. Well, they don't know that in the background <laughs> that laptop is involved in a DDoS attack because it was hacked by somebody uh, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, attribution would say, yeah, those computers are located here, but that's not that location is not where the attack is coming from. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually who's who's making the attack happen, regardless of where or whose uh, machines might be involved, say. Mm -hmm. Okay. What did you find that was most surprising in your research? I guess I find particularly intriguing where where the assumptions can conflict with themselves, where we see things that uh, uh, cases where folks might say seemingly in one breath, uh, cyber weapons are cheap and they're widely available. And then they'll also say cyber weapons are extraordinarily sophisticated. Well, that that's very unlikely to, for those both to be true at the, at the same time, mm -hmm. because if they're very sophisticated, they're probably going to take a lot of investment uh, in terms of time and expertise and money. And that's typically the, the opposite of cheap and widely available. And so seeing a lot of these assumptions that seem to contradict each other, but are often espoused by the same people, even almost at the same time. I thought that was something that was surprising and interesting to grapple with and, and pointed to the fact that there's a lot of cases where these, where these uh, mythologies have enough circumstantial evidence that we can understand why they took hold and why they gained popularity, um, but that there's usually a lot more nuance involved and, and a lot of details that, that should mitigate against our thinking that Ah, this this thing is always true. Cyber weapons are always instantaneously functional. They're always cheap. They're always one use. There's a, a lot more to it. And I thought grappling with 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 sort of the, those paradoxes was was surprising and and exciting. Was there a particular question that you had a lot of difficulty reaching a conclusion on, or maybe you never did get a satisfactory answer? I think uh, I'm, I'm probably not alone in, in struggling with. How do we how do we deal with the leveraging of social media in uh, for political purposes? Mm -hmm. I think that's that's something that uh, uh, I don't I don't have a good answer about that, mm -hmm. and I think uh, I'm I'm probably in a lot of good company in not having a good answer to to what what do we do with that? What does that what does the solution actually look like? Because I I suspect that there isn't a silver bullet waiting to be found in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you hope the book will do? I really do hope that it provides a, uh, an opportunity for readers to learn more about cyber warfare, um, about what assumptions are common, about what cyber warfare entails, about why some of those assumptions that are, that are popular have some ba uh, basis in fact, but why they should come with caveats. And uh, ultimately, I, I hope that this book helps people think uh, themselves about cyberspace and about 
about warfare. I was just wondering, um, can you ever imagine people in the future, you know, the way people analyze battles nowadays, could, could you see people in the future analyzing cyber attacks, you know, in a similar way, like machine X, you know, uh, moved, you know, did X number against, you know, such and such target. And then, you know, I wonder that would be, <laughs> that, that would be a fascinating thing to see. I, I, we, we may not be that far away from, from seeing the first, uh, uh, the first examples of kind of operational histories of, of cyber war. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine, uh, classification issues might be, might be something that kind of slows down that process mm-hmm. in a way that, uh, um, you can, you can see operational histories of, of a lot of kinetic conflicts because, well, folks can, they can see the, the ships approaching Normandy. They can see people getting off the, the Higgins boats. And so you can, you can write an operational history after World War II that, you know, this is how D-Day happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine that, that it, the, the process might be complicated, I guess, by, uh, concerns about what's, what's visible. Uh, and and when, mm-hmm. but it, it will be fascinating to see uh, when we when we do get something kind of like those operational histories, but of of the electrons flying around. Mm-hmm. That'd, that'd be pretty pretty neat. From the perspective of a historian studying this, though, there's so much data that's just never was never recorded. No one's going to know. It's like all this hidden in in the age of information. We're going to have all these activities and operations that may never be known. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and again, comparing that to, like you say, World War II, when we're able to gather all this data and we know what happened, um, you know, the world might now be changing, you know, under our feet and we'll just never understand, we'll never understand why, because the, the participants never speak on it. There's no record, really. Um, so it's just kind of strange to me. It's, uh, it, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how this is, how this is recorded. And, uh, and and regarding warfare, uh, even even kinetic fighting in the in in the information age, there is so much being saved, but then not being saved permanently. Mm-hmm. That uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how how conflict broadly is understood and studied during during an era where we are so proud that we are so interconnected and we have so many you know, zillions of terabytes of capability to, to, to save data, mm-hmm. uh, to see what actually gets preserved and then interpreted is going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did you have any difficulties getting the book, uh, finished or published? Happily, the, the writing process uh, itself went, went pretty smoothly. I'm a, I'm a morning person getting a jump on, on writing from the start of the day, Helps provide uh, useful momentum, and I I really like being able to to get a, a solid start and then just press on uh, through through the the structure that I've that I've designed. Um, the publishing also I'm happy to say went smoothly as well. Um, this is uh, this is my fourth my fourth book, and uh, I, in past years I've developed a, a good working relationship with uh, several several publishers, especially. Uh, Especially this one that uh, the, the company that owns uh, Prager Security International, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I've worked with them uh, quite often in the past and found them friendly and professional, and it was a it was a nice process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Connected to that, uh, in terms of future projects, there there are a couple that I that I am working on. One of them is also with this press, and that's under contract. 
uh, when they when they got the manuscript for for myths and realities of cyber warfare, they uh, they said they they asked me to, to create a new book um, on a on a related topic, and so that's going to be uh, called Weaponizing Cyberspace, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm gratified and uh, and excited about that. And then beyond that, I'm also working on a history monograph dealing with uh, Dutch and Indonesian air power training during World War II. So remaining current both on the on the cyber uh, the cyber uh, aspects, but also uh, uh, keeping in touch with my with my military history roots as well. Yeah. Where can people find you on the web? Do you have a website, social media, anything like that? Uh, so I, I do have a, a Twitter account. That's uh, a history N, like the letter N for Nick, context, so history and context. Okay. And then make sure that like my Amazon author bio is up to date, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? It was a pleasure, uh, pleasure to talk with you. I sure appreciate you having me on here, Chris. Oh yeah. It was very interesting. Um, it's cool stuff to, and especially, you know, it's still unfolding, so it'll be cool to see what happened. Well, maybe not cool. Interesting. <laughs> very interesting. We, we're, we're, quite blessed to live in interesting times aren't we yeah 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 (laughs) all right well thank you thank you thank you for listening you can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title military history inside out that includes apple podcasts stitcher and spotify one great way to support me is to rate my podcasts either good or bad you can find more great military history information at warscholar.org on YouTube at War Scholar 1945, on Facebook at War Scholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar, and on Twitter at War Scholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.